Welcome to A Little Louder Now, a podcast produced by The Bridge Initiative and FI360 Project. This is the Breaking Barrier series. We are Alex and Alicia, your hosts and resident fangirls of all women who break barriers for others. During the Breaking Barrier series, we highlight individuals from all industries and walks of life who have blazed trails for others. Each month, we will focus on a different theme topic, and the theme of this month for Breaking Barriers is Science Mavens. Today, we are going to talk about Florence Nightingale. You didn't really know much about Florence Nightingale when we started this, did you? You're being kind. I knew nothing about Florence Nightingale. I actually thought she was someone else. You thought she was Clara Barton. (laughs) I did. Uh, so, whereas sorry. I know lots of things about Florence Nightingale for personal reasons that we'll get into later. Okay, great. Uh, but as for why we're talking about Florence Nightingale, um, so Florence was actually the founder of modern and what we now think about today as nursing. Um, she was also lesser known for her social reform. She was a statistician and a writer. She was also a pioneer in the use of infographics, including the pie chart. Uh, but okay. You know, the, the thing that she's most known for is making hospitals a cleaner and safer place. And um, also being known as the lady with the lamp. So I think it's really interesting that she was named Florence and born in Florence, Italy, in yeah. uh, May of 1820. Apparently her parents named their children after the city that they're born in. Well, I mean, her and her sister, yes. Yes. Her poor sister was named Parthenope. Parthenope. I don't really know how to pronounce that. Traveling through Greece at the time. Uh, So her parents were wealthy, upper class, and well-connected. They were all from England, but were traveling, you know, on this, like, tour. On the continent. Yes. As they would say. Yes. Uh, So that was really interesting to me. And actually, did you know that her father was not born William um, Nightingale? I, I did know this. He was born William Shore. But whenever his uncle passed away, he inherited the home Leahurst, but he had to change his name to Nightingale so he could have the Nightingale coat of arms and all that good stuff. So, you know, as you do when you inherit something like that. So now he's William Nightingale and his children are Florence and Parthenope. Nightingale. Yeah. Nightingale. So they returned to England after their their grand tour of the continent Mm. um, in 1821. And they actually, because of Learhurst, they had two homes. Um, So the the one in Derbyshire, that was Learhurst. But they also had a winter home in Hampshire, England, called Embley. All right. Uh, So Florence grew up in a wealthy family, obviously, and was homeschooled by her father. The the two homes kind of gave it away. Yeah. Coat of arms. Yeah. World tour. Um, (laughs) She was homeschooled by her father, as you would be done at that time. She was expected to get married at a young age and start making heirs. Mm -hmm. But she was specifically gifted in mathematics, and she believed that she received a calling from God to help the poor and the sick. Um, When she was a teenager, right? Yeah. And her parents didn't much care for that. Well, yeah. I mean, because nursing, it wasn't... it wasn't a profession like we think of it now back then. It's not then. respected in the way. Right. It wasn't respected, but, you know, Florence was really adamant about her calling and told her parents that, you know, like, no, I'm a, I'm a be a nurse. Mm-hmm. They did not approve of this decision. No. But she was adamant and stubborn, which mm-hmm. I love, 
and she refused marriage strongly enough that her father permitted her to go to Germany for three months to study at Pastor Theodore Fleidner's hospital and school for the Lutheran deaconesses. He probably thought, like, let's just get her, get, let this get mm-hmm. out of her system, and then she'll come back and get married. Like, how, I just don't want to yeah. hear about it anymore. Yeah, but <laughs> it didn't... Uh, That's not how it worked. <laughs> not how it worked Sorry, out Daddy. <laughs> um, so after she finished the program in Germany, so she was there, uh, you just said, for three months, mm-hmm. Florence then went to Paris to have some extra training with the Sisters of Mercy. She just never came home. <laughs> yeah, um, or then she just continued <laughs> traveling. And so, like, during these travels, she boss met... boss move. Um, <laughs> it is, indeed. She met Sidney Herbert, who had been... Um, and then and also would be again the Secretary of War, and they actually became lifelong friends. Um, he and his wife would um, eventually become absolutely instrumental in enabling Florence's work in the Crimea, mm-hmm. which we're going to talk about in uh, just just a minute. She right. um, she traveled to Greece and Egypt, and um, I thought this was this is really cute and really indicative of the, of the kind of person that Florence was. She rescued a little owl that was being tormented by a group of kids, Aww. and she named it Athena. Where, do, where was she? She was probably in Athens. Yeah. She took after her parents that way, naming things in the city mm-hmm. that she's in. Uh, she was known to carry the owl about in her pocket before, she passed, before the owl passed away. That's very cute. Isn't it? I thought you would um, like that especially. I do like I enjoy owls, so and kindness to animals. So I, I love that story. But by the time she was thirty three, she had a name for herself in the nursing community, and when she returned to England in eighteen fifty three, she actually became the superintendent and manager of a hospital for gentlewomen in London. Her father, who didn't approve of this and basically wanted her to get out of her system, had given her an annual income of 500 pounds, which equates to roughly 65 grand U.S. dollars in today's money, so that she could live comfortably in her nursing career. Mm-hmm. Love you, Daddy. <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, I that's a good dad. I don't agree with your decision, but it's obviously making you happy, so I'm going to make sure you get to eat and live comfortably. He could have cut her off. Yeah, I'm, I think most people would in that Disowned instance. Her. Not that it's right, but... I think that they would, you mm-hmm. know. I that still happens now. <laughs> true. So true. I um, I'm just really impressed with her dad. You got a you got a good one there, Florence. I mean, you know, she's been yeah dead for a while, but well, you had a good um, one. You both had good ones. <laughs> okay, speaking to you from the grave. Yeah. Uh, let's. <laughs> so she she did this. She was the superintendent at that hospital for mm-hmm. uh, about a year before the Crimean War began in 1854, and the British Secretary of War asked Florence to manage a group of nurses that would go treat wounded soldiers in the war. Now, let's do a little history sesh for those of our listeners who are not as big of history buffs as you and uh, myself are. Again, you're being kind. I didn't know that there was a Crimean War until today. Oh, Okay, well, well, I'm a history buff, and I knew what the Crimean War was. I did not, so that's... That's why I gave you the... An indictment of my education. Article to read. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so the Crimean War was part of the Ottoman wars that were fought in Europe, um, and the wars that were uh, fought between Russia and the Turkish Empire. So the Russians were basically fighting against the alliance of the Ottoman Empire, which was 
um, you know, like Turkey. I know what the Ottoman Empire okay. is. All right, all right. I just didn't know about this particular war. So they were in an alliance, the Ottoman Empire, with France, Britain, and Sardinia. And uh, so the Russians were fighting this alliance um, over the rights of Christian minorities in the Holy Land, which, of course, was part of the Ottoman Empire. Um, While Russia, conversely, saw itself as the protector of Orthodox Christians, many of whom lived under Ottoman control and were treated as second-class citizens. But... I think the like the biggest like that's the we're going to war because of this. Yes. But the biggest cause after reading about this was that the Ottoman Empire was in decline at this point, mm-hmm. and Britain and France didn't want Russia to gain any more territory or power from this declining Ottoman Empire. They were already powerful enough for their tastes. Right. So they didn't specifically want Russia to gain access to the Mediterranean Sea, and Britain didn't want them to get any closer to British India, move towards Scandinavia, or toward Western Europe. Basically, like, you've got your box. Stay in your box. Yes. You're not allowed to have any more space or we're going to go to war. the Russian Empire had already been expanding Mm -hmm. for years at that point. At the expense of the Ottoman Empire. So, anyway, you can safely say the British were very invested in the outcome of the Crimean War and fought like hell for the alliance countries to win. Mm Mm-hmm. However, what the British were not prepared to deal with were the sheer number of sick and injured soldiers. So you can safely say that the British were invested in the outcome of the war and fought like hell for the alliance countries to win. However, what the British were not prepared to deal with were the sheer numbers of sick and injured soldiers. Keep in mind, the Crimean War also marked the start of the modern military technologies. So it was one of the first to be documented extensively and written in photographic reports. And because of that, and the way the war had been managed to this point, it quickly became a symbol, an iconic symbol, of logistical, medical, and tactical failures and mismanagement in general. They weren't prepared. They didn't have supplies. They they had this atrocious death rate of 40% of anybody who was injured as a soldier was going to die. Well, right. I mean, and and the reaction in Britain was basically like, we needed to professionalize this. Yes. Fix it. Yes. It needs to be (laughs) fixed. Um, You know, there was a decided lack of medical supplies, as you were saying. There was so much overcrowding caused by the sheer number of sick and wounded and, you know, unsanitary conditions caused so many people to complain that, you know, even going so far as, you know, newspapers at the time began to report about the terrible state of medical care that soldiers and, and you know, injured, sick civilians were receiving. I read somewhere that the doctors were just spreading straw on the ground mm-hmm. so it would sop up the blood. Yes. Ugh. <laughs> so... This is, this is, at this point, the Secretary of War is like, I got to get this in hand. Yes. And so... Who is Sidney Herbert, who her she friend. met... Yes, yeah. exactly. Her yeah. Um, so he asked Florence to manage a group of nurses, there were 38 nurses, to treat these weaned, wounded... Weaned. Weaned. All right. Weaned soldiers. Wounded, excuse me. Wounded soldiers. <laughs> so they show up on November 4th, 1854 at the British camp outside of Constantinople, and when they got there, the doctors didn't want to speak to them, didn't want to work with them, because they didn't want to work with women. Yeah. Mm. I've got 
problems with that. Oh, yeah. Um, but their opinion quickly changed because they realized they were so understaffed and overwhelmed that they needed the help. Yes. So at least it quickly changed. Yeah, I mean, well, Florence and her nurses brought in supplies, nutritious food, cleanliness, um, you know, and, and sanitation to the hospital and provided a level of individual care and support to patients that they weren't receiving. Right. Um, you know, she basically came in and was like, we're not going to do it this way anymore. Right. We're going to do it my way, and these are the 38 people that I've trained to do it my way, and you're going to listen to them and do it their way. Exactly. Bottom line. <laughs> if you got a problem with that, take it to the Secretary of War. <laughs> exactly. So... <laughs> Um, you know, Florence and her nurses, they found a whole bunch of different things. They, they basically found that, you know, that they, the patients were being given poor care by overworked medical staff, and they were also facing official indifference. Yes. And Florence, they, they also found that medicines were short supply, hygiene was being neglected, and mass infections were really common at the time, many of which were fatal when they didn't really need to be. Mm-hmm. And there was no equipment to process food for the patients. Which is logistically a failure. Absolutely. As you were saying before. How how could you, okay. How could you wage a war without a way to process food for your wounded soldiers? But okay. Right. Okay, Britain. (laughs) So. Well, this goes back to them not being prepared for this war. They were not ready for this war. Right. So Florence set a plea to the Times for a government solution to the poor conditions of the facilities. And as a result, the British government commissioned and built a new civilian facility. Yes. Um, This is actually the time where Florence became known as the lady with the lamp because she would um, carry a lamp with her when she would go check on soldiers at night. And Mm -hmm. she was one of the only people that would do that. And, um, you know, the British newspaper you just mentioned, The Times, called her a, quote, ministering angel without any exaggeration. No, I mean, how many lives did she save? (laughs) A lot. Um, You know, they, they also said that, this is a quote, as her slender form glides quietly along each corridor, every poor fellow's face softens with gratitude at the sight of her. When all the medical officers have retired for the night and silence and darkness have settled down upon those miles of prostrate sick, she may be observed alone, with a little lamp in her hand, making her solitary rounds. I like that it has to be noted that she's slender. Well, <laughs> I feel like that's completely unnecessary. But it, I, yeah, that's what I'm getting at. It's who cares if she's skinny, if she's saving lives, but whatever. <laughs> you could call her graceful. That would be mm-hmm. better. Let's change it. It's All graceful right. now. The lady with the lamp moniker was popularized even more by the the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in his 1857 poem titled Saint Santa Filomena. Mm-hmm. The poem partly says, Lo, in that house of misery, a lady with a lamp I see. Pass through the glimmering gloom and flit from room to room. It rhymes pretty well. It does. It's good stuff. Yeah. Anyway, within six months of her being there and her nurses, uh, her team and herself transformed the hospital and the death rate went down from 40% to 2%. Mm-hmm. Their work is the direct... This is the direct result of their work, basically. Um, providing supplies, clean food clean rooms, sanitation options, as well as individual care and support for each patient. One of the things that, I mean, that they weren't doing was washing their hands before each surgery or each time they saw a patient. They weren't practicing basic hygiene and cleanliness. Well, what we think of as basic hygiene At the time, it wasn't. Correct. But 
So, like, a, a doctor who just touched a patient who had passed away would just walk in and touch someone who was healthy, and of, mm-hmm. of course they're going to get sick. <laughs> so, I... Good job, Florence. <laughs> well, it's one of the other things that I thought was interesting that I found during my research was that Florence never took credit for that decrease in the death rate. She basically attributed it to all of the things that they as a team were doing. Good for her. So, anyway, in November of 1855, a mere year um, after she arrived in the Crimea, the Nightingale Fund was established for the training of nurses. And it was established during a public meeting in order to recognize Florence and her work in the war. There was almost an immediate outpouring of generous donations and the Secretary of War, the one who originally asked Florence to go to Crimea, um, her friend, Sidney Herbert, served as the honorary secretary of the fund and the Duke of Cambridge was the chairman. The Duke of Cambridge actually fought in the Crimean War. Yes. And he was deeply concerned about the welfare of soldiers and so this was a a logical step for him to be a part of this. Yes. Um, so Florence retor- returned from the war and continued her work to improve conditions in hospitals and home. Due to the Nightingale Fund, she had about 45,000 pounds at her disposal and set up a training school called the Nightingale Training School at St. Thomas's Hospital in 1860. And the first trained Nightingale nurses began to work in May of 1865 at the Liverpool Workhouse Infirmary. This school is now called the Florence Nightingale School of Nursing and Midwifery and is part of King's College, London. It is indeed. That's Um, cool. It is cool. Uh, The other thing that's really cool is that in 1859, uh, Florence wrote a book called Notes on Nursing, which served as the cornerstone of the curriculum at that Nightingale School, as well as other nursing schools but it was actually specifically written for the education of those who were nursing at home. The book was was more about what we think of as health and cleanliness, cleanliness rather, um, and sanitary, than what we think of as nursing now. For example, you mentioned washing your hands mm-hmm. after seeing patient to patient. Um, you know, it it had that example, like washing your hands after going to the bathroom or bathing more regularly. Um, the book also sold to the general public and is still considered a classic introduction to nursing. It has had several iterations and editions since the original in 1859. It's still, like, you still buy it. In the introduction of the 1974 edition, Joan Quixley of the Nightingale School of Nursing wrote, and I quote, The book was the first of its kind ever to be written. It appeared at a time when the simple rules of health were only beginning to be known when its topics were of vital importance, not only for the well-being and recovery of patients when hospitals were riddled with infection, when nurses were still mainly regarded as ignorant, uneducated persons. The book has, inevitably, its place in the history of nursing, for it was written by the founder of modern nursing. It's very true. Mm-hmm. Um, Florence, you know, she spent the rest of her life dedicated to promoting and organizing the professionalization of nursing. She took her status, you know, as a as a wealthy, well-off, um, well-regarded, educated mm-hmm. woman and used it to raise the public perception mm-hmm. of nursing from poor people to professionals. There was a Charles Dickens book, I can't remember which one, that was popular at the, around this time and there, there was a nurse 
a, a character. I think Sarah Gumps or Gamps or Camps, something like that. I don't know. And she, the way that she was portrayed as a nurse had a lot uh, to do with public perception at the time. And Florence kind of turned that on its head. Mm-hmm. Um, and introduced an actual professional nurse. With a respect yes. to it. You know, the respect that we give nurses today is directly reflective mm-hmm. of Florence Nightingale's efforts to raise the standard for nursing, yeah. but also raise the public perception of what a nurse does and how important they are. Yes, and, and so she actually introduced trained nurses into the workhouse system in Britain in the 1860s, and sick, poor people were essentially no longer being cared for by other sick and poor people, but by those trained professionals. Which would affect the, um, like, rate of death and, yes. and stuff like that, you know? So I think that's really important. Um, when, I guess, Carolyn Worthington, who is the director of the Florence Nightingale Museum, said it probably the best. She said, and I quote, When Florence Nightingale started out, there was no such thing as nursing. Hospitals were places of last resort where the floors were laid with straw to soak up the blood. Florence transformed nursing when she got back from Crimea. She had access to people in high places, and she used it to get things done. Florence was stubborn, opinionated, and forthright, but she had to be those things in order to achieve all that she did. True. So after the Crimean War, um, you know, she didn't have soldiers to tend to, but... You know, the general public. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she turned her attention to the health of the British Army in India, uh, because remember the Brits held India for many years, mm-hmm. and she she demonstrated that she she did this like big uh, research report basically demonstrated that bad drainage, contaminated water, overcrowding, and poor ventilation were causing the high death rates, and she produced a report which concluded that. The health of the army and that of the people of India had to go hand in hand and led to her campaigning campaigning rather to improve the sanitary conditions of the country as a whole and she was successful and a royal commission was established for the situation in India. Um, she also was presented with an opportunity by the Royal Sanitation Commission of 1868-1869 to press for compulsory sanitation in private houses. And she lobbied the minister responsible to strengthen the proposed public health bill to require owners of existing properties to pay for connection to mains drainage. So what this means is that you're not gonna dump your stuff in the street anymore. Mm -hmm. You have to be connected to drainage underneath the street so that, I mean, that's illness. You can dispose of things properly. Yes. So the strengthened legislation was enacted in Public Health Acts of 1874 and 1875, and at the same time, she combined with the retired sanitary reformer Edwin Chadwick to persuade the government to devolve powers to enforce the law to local authorities, eliminated central control by medical technocrats. So basically, the local authorities could be like, hey, I see you dumping crap in the street. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Stop. Here's a ticket. Yeah, I mean, her... I think that her experiences in the Crimean War um, had convinced her that non-medical approaches were more effective given the state of knowledge at the time. And historians 
now believe that both drainage and developed enforcement played a crucial role in increasing average national life expectancies by 20 years between 1871 and the mid-1930s, you know, during which time medical science made no impact on the most fatal epidemic diseases. So I think it's clear that Florence Nightingale's work served as an inspiration and standard for nurses during the American Civil War, which is what I initially thought she was part of, <laughs> where the Union government asked for advice in organizing field medicine. Her ideas inspire the volunteer body of the United States Sanitary Commission. Uh, indeed. In the 1870s, um, Florence actually mentored Linda Richards, who's actually known as America's first trained nurse. Mm -hmm. And she enabled Linda to return to the U.S. with adequate knowledge and training to establish those high-quality nursing schools. And then she went on, Linda, this is, went on to become a nursing pioneer in both the U.S. and Japan. Right, so by 1882, Florence-trained nurses had become matrons at several leading hospitals in London and throughout Britain, including Sydney Hospital in New South Wales, Australia. She literally had trained people all around the world. Yeah, that's in 18, so cool. Yeah. In 1883, Florence became the first recipient of the Royal Red Cross, which is a British military decoration for exceptional services in military nursing. So think about this. Initially, nursing was not seen as a profession. It was just a sick person trying to help another sick person while they both died. Mm -hmm. At this point, she has changed that profession so much that there is a British military decoration for exceptional services in military nursing. There's way more than that. I know, but, but I'm just saying, like, yeah. think about that. Continue with the more than that. Yes, uh, thank you. So in 1904, she was appointed a Lady of Grace of the Order of St. John, which is a British royal order of chivalry, originally constituted by Queen Victoria by royal charter in 1888. In 1907, she became the first woman to be awarded the Order of Merit, which recognizes distinguished service in the armed forces, science, art, literature, or for the promotion of culture. Um, it remains to this day the personal gift of the sovereign, our, one of our favorite women, QE2. Yes. Um, go ahead. You can fangirl for a second. Okay. And um, it's actually restricted to a maximum of 24 living recipients from the Commonwealth realms in addition to a limited number of honorary members. And the following year, in 1908, she was given the honorary freedom of the City of London. After her long and impactful life, on the 13th of August, 1910, at the age of 90, she died peacefully in her sleep, in her room, in Mayfair, London. The offer of burial in Westminster Abbey mm -hmm. was declined by her relatives, and she is buried in the graveyard at St. Margaret's Church in East Willow, Hampshire, near the family home of Embley Park. Yeah, she actually left a large body um, of work, including several hundred notes that were previously unpublished. Um, she also has a memorial monument. Mm -hmm. uh, it was... Created in marble by Francis William Sargant in 1913 and placed in the cloister of the Basilica in St. Croce, mm, okay. sure. Florence, okay. sorry, don't speak French. Uh, I just want it to <laughs> be mean, known. It's Italy. It, I don't speak Italian either. Okay. Uh, if at any point it's offered for me to be buried at Westminster Abbey, I want that. Okay. Just, I want to put that out there. So. All right. 
Don't decline it. Uh, family of Alicia, if you're listening. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about her legacy a little bit. For, um, <clears throat> yeah. She she left quite a lot the legacy. to talk about. Yeah. Um, actually, one of her lesser known contributions is her pioneering visual presentation of information and statistical graphics. Remember, you said at the beginning that she was particularly gifted in mathematics. Yes. Um, this is, you know, this is where this comes in. She used methods like the pie chart, which had first been developed in 1801 and was a relatively novel way of presenting data in her day, unlike it is today. Right. You know, we take advantage of the pie chart, but that was a new way to present information in right. her day. And think about the the letter she sent, the the statistics that she used to get the cleaner um sanitary more sanitary conditions in the hospitals she probably used graphs and pie charts well yeah she had to think of a way to to get the information across in a way that would make people sit up and take notice like a picture yeah visual yes we 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 all know that men are more visual creatures i don't know i mean men were always in charge at that point in time i'm a visual creature i am also a visual creature but um you know Anyway, uh, she even has a diagram that's named after her. It's called the Nightingale-Rose Diagram, which um, I had absolutely no idea about this. Um, I don't know what most of these words are, so uh, bear with me. The Nightingale-Rose Diagram is equivalent to a modern circular histogram, and it's used to illustrate seasonal sources of patient mortality in the military field hospital that she managed. Well, she was, because of all of this and her... her knack for math uh she was the first female elected member of the royal statistical society and in 1874 became an honorary member of the american statistical society or excuse me association um so when when she was you know closer to her her death her end of life thank you um in 1910 uh, she died so she had a, a few bedridden years um closer to her death she did some pioneering work in the field of hospital planning and her work uh, spread really quickly across Britain and the world. Um, but, you know, as most most people, she slowed down. Um, her output of work slowed down considerably in her last decade. And she actually, um, you know, wrote very little during that period due to blindness and declining mental abilities. But she had a strong interest all throughout her life in current affairs. Mm-hmm. I think her biggest and most lasting legacy has been her role in the founding of the modern nursing profession. Yes, absolutely. She set an example of compassion and commitment to patient care and diligent and thoughtful hospital administration with care for the patient first. Yes. Uh, and one of the things uh, what I said in the beginning that um, you know I have some personal Mm-hmm. Not real connection with Florence Nightingale, but... Sort of. Sort of. Like a seven, um, seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. Sort sure. Of it's six degrees, but Whatever. sure. Um, <laughs> so, uh, in 19... 19- I have a lot of nurses in my family. My yeah. my family is riddled with nurses. Um, and I, Anyway, let me tell you something else first before I get into that. Um, so, in 1912, the International Committee of the Red Cross instituted the Florence Nightingale Medal which is awarded, even still today, every two years to nurses or nursing aides for outstanding service. It is 
the highest international distinction a nurse can achieve and is awarded to nurses or nursing aides for exceptional courage and devotion to the wounded, sick or disabled, or to civilian victims of a conflict or disaster, or for exemplary services or a creative and pioneering spirit in the areas of public health or nursing education. How amazing is it that she has this prestigious award Mm -hmm. that's named after her? Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, my paternal grandmother, Phyllis, she was awarded the uh, Florence Nightingale Medal in 2002. I'm very proud of her. She was a disaster nurse for the Red Cross for so many years. I think it was like almost 40 years. And she has, she had gone on 50 national disasters um, throughout those 37 years. Yeah, I mean, she, um, she was the one who actually taught me how to pack for a trip because of her experiences packing for disasters. Okay. Um, you know, she, she would always have to have a bag packed. And um, I remember going to my grandparents' house when I was little, and there was the, the TV in the kitchen was always on. And it was always, you know, on one specific channel. And I was asking my pap once why it was always on. And he said that there was something... Go- I can't remember what was going on at the time, but there was something going on. And my grandmother was watching. Um, she was watching the news and, and waiting for the call. Mm-hmm. She was trying to see what was happening on the ground, what the news was reporting. Um, you know, so she would get the call and she would just... She'd go. Yeah. she'd be gone and she'd be gone for months um, and she she helped so many people um, there's articles that are written about her uh, we're very proud of her um, very proud of you grandma Phyllis um, so anyway that's very cool. that is my personal connection to Florence Nightingale that's that's very cool um, it's um, impressive that your grandmother was awarded such a prestigious award. Yeah, we had to go to, we all went to, were invited to the, the headquarters in D.C. Um, and she was, there was like this very official ceremony and uh, it was written about in the newspaper and videos. There's, it was very cool. It was very cool. Um, there's actually International Nurses Day. Mm-hmm. Um, that is on Florence Nightingale's birthday. May 12th. I didn't know that. Yep. Oh, I didn't know who Florence Nightingale was. Celebrated every year. (laughs) Um, The president of India honors nursing professionals with the National Florence Nightingale Award every year on International Nurses Day. The award, which was established in 1973, is given in recognition of the meritorious services of nursing professionals characterized by devotion, sincerity, dedication, and compassion. There is a Nightingale Pledge that's a modified version of the Hippocratic Oath that nurses recite at their pinning ceremony at the end of training. My cousin, Elena, just went through this. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very, it was a proud moment for everyone. She is now the third generation of nurses in our family. Um, but anyway, so it, the, the, the Nightingale Pet Pledge was created in 1893, and obviously it was named after Florence Nightingale, the mm-hmm. founder of modern nursing. The statement is, uh, sorry, the pledge is is a, a statement of the ethics and principles that Florence Nightingale set for the nursing profession. Right, and so the Florence Nightingale Declaration campaign, established by nursing leaders throughout the world through the Nightingale Initiative for Global Health, 
aims to build a global gas, grassroots movement to achieve two United Nations resolutions for adoption by the UN General Assembly. They declare, one, the International Year of the Nurse, uh, which would have it's been the, 2010. Yeah, the centenary of Nightingale's death. And two, the UN Decade for a Healthy World, which is 2011 to 2020, which is the bicentenary of Nightingale's birth. They also work to rekindle awareness about the important issues highlighted by Florence Nightingale, such as preventative medicine and holistic health. As of 2016, the Florence Nightingale Declaration has been signed by over 25,000 signatories in 106 countries. Yes. Um, Florence Nightingale, she has been immortalized. Uh, in so many different ways. Song, poems, audio, theater, TV, film, museums, monuments, books. Uh, she has navy ships that were named after her, postage stamps, and banknotes. Imagine how lovely her slender figure looked on the postage stamp. Did you know that prior to 2002, she was the only woman other than female monarchs who had ever been... You're still laughing about this. I'm like, I'm trying to be serious. I'm hilarious. I know you're hilarious. <laughs> Let me get through this and then we can toast to her. Okay, let's be serious. So anyway, she was on banknotes and prior to 2002, um, she was the only woman other than female monarchs who had ever adorned British paper currency. Isn't that cool? I think that she did get a calling from God and I'm really glad that her parents supported either begrudgingly or not supported her calling yeah she changed the world so, so let's let's toast to to florence yes um let's toast to the impact that she's had on the profession of nursing and the professionalization of nursing mm -hmm. um i personally thank her because that is the profession of many of the women in my family mm -hmm. not me not uh, you. Not me. I wanted to be a brain surgeon, but this isn't about you. It's, about it's not about right me. It's, it's about Florence Nightingale. <laughs> so thank you to Florence um, for all that you did, all of the barriers that you broke, all of the um, you know trails that you had to blaze for so that women um, and and the profession of nursing could be what it is today. Yes, thank you, Florence. Thank you for spending your time with us. Again, this is Breaking Barriers and a Little Louder Now podcast produced by The Bridge Initiative. Thank you to my lovely and hilarious uh, cohort, Alicia, for our great conversation. Um, thank you, listener, for taking time with us today to talk about the amazing science maven, Florence Nightingale. Stay tuned for more podcasts featuring magnificent women who broke barriers. If you'd like to catch up on what we've been doing, or if you have questions, topic ideas, or if you just would like to be a part of our community, you can visit fi360bridge.com to check out previous podcasts, webinars, and blog posts. You can email us at bridge at fi360.com, or you can connect with us on Twitter and Insta at fi360bridge. You can also support the podcast without spending a dime by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we want you all to get a, a little, little louder, louder now. now.